Ananias and Sapphira, one of the scary stories of the New Testament, one of those stories that you say, wow, this is almost like a movie. This almost sounds like the New Testament church is a bunch of mafia mafiosos and they're, they're killing people when they're not given what they're supposed to be given. It's a scary story. But what do we have going on here? We have the New Testament church. The New Testament church in which they were expecting the immediate return of Jesus. They were expecting Jesus to come back, oh, next Tuesday, let us say. They were expecting Jesus to return immediately. And so nothing was more important than spreading the gospel. Nothing was more important than bringing people into the church. Nothing was more important than preaching about the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Nothing was more important to them than proclaiming Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Nothing was more important than getting the message out. And so everything that they could do to get the message out became job one. They lived together communally. They sold their individual possessions and gave the money to the church to further the ministry of the church. The people received their food from the church. They received the directions from the church and how to live and where to live and what to do. They were freed up from daily routines to go out and to preach the good news, to witness to the love of God, to provide food and shelter to the hungry and the homeless, to the widows and the orphans. The church was freed up to be engaged in mission and in ministry. They weren't concerned about earthly things. They were only concerned about the things of God. This mission, this ministry, this calling required money. And so they sold their possessions. They sold their lands. They sold their materials. We had, we had here Barnabas selling this piece of property that he had and laying the money, the proceeds from the sale at the disciples, the apostles' feet. They were supposed to give all that they had. And they did give all. But Ananias and Sapphira, they, they were a little concerned about this idea. They, they weren't necessarily sure that they could trust. They wanted to have some of the money for themselves, and so they agreed to sell the property for one price and then to give a lower amount, less amount, to the apostles and claim that it was the whole amount from the proceeds. In other words, they lied to God. And Ananias comes in, he lays the money at the disciples' feet. Uh, Peter questions him, confronts him about it. What has compelled you to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then he drops over dead. Bam! Dead. And they come in and they pick his body up and they carry him out and they bury him. And then the story continues in what I think is one of the most fascinating sequences. After an interval of about three hours... After three hours, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. And what church members are these? They didn't come up to her and say, Oh, Sapphira, your husband just keeled over dead. No. They said, Oh. They didn't say, He's dead. Instead, they kept quiet. Shh. Don't tell her. Don't tell her. Shh. Keep quiet about it. Shh. Let's see what she says. Don't you get that kind of weird? I mean, think about it. Here, her husband has died. Ananias is dead. They've already buried him. And they don't tell her. Shh. Keep quiet. Don't let her know. Don't let on. Shh. It's a secret. Hey, Sapphira. Did you sell the property for this amount of money? 
Oh, yeah, that's what we sold it for. And then Peter says, How is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door. I just can see this. I looked and looked and looked for something on the internet, a good picture, a cute picture with the, the bottom of a tent, and you see two, two sets of feet underneath it there. I couldn't find it. I looked for it. I looked for it. How is it that you've agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. That's not very good pastoral care, Peter. Her husband's just died. Immediately she fell down at his feet and died. Clunk, dead. Both Ananias and Sapphira pushing up daisies for having lied to God, for having lied to the Holy Spirit. Now, there are several lessons that we learn from this story, and they are not the following. This story doesn't teach us that we're supposed to give everything that we have and that if we don't, God's going to strike us dead. It doesn't teach us that, friends. Nor does it teach us that if we make a pledge, we'd better pay it or God will strike us dead. It doesn't teach us that either. Sorry, Charlie. Sorry, Mel, but it doesn't teach that. Wish it kind of did, but it doesn't. This story doesn't even teach us that if we lie to God, God's going to strike us dead. Though I don't recommend lying to God. It doesn't teach us that God's going to strike us dead. What it does teach us is that there are deep, eternal consequences to lying to God. There are deep and eternal consequences when we lie to God, when we misrepresent ourselves to God, when we say one thing and do another, when we commit ourselves to God and then back out of that commitment, we run a deep risk of dying spiritually and dying eternally. That's worse than dying physically, friends. The concept, the idea, the thought of dying spiritually and dying eternally is terrifying to me. And that's the risk we run when we lie to the Holy Spirit, when we lie to God when we commit ourselves and don't, by intention, don't follow through. Ananias and Sapphira also, the other lesson we learn here, is that they didn't have faith. Now these were two members of the church. They were members of the church. They were believers in Jesus Christ. They had received baptism in the Holy Spirit. They were part of the community of the faith. They were believers. And yet, they had a lack of faith. They conspired together to hold back a portion of the sale rather than trusting in God as their source of supply, rather than trusting in the proclamation of the faith that Jesus Christ will supply our needs, rather than trusting in the church, rather than trusting in the apostles, rather than trusting in the faith, rather than trusting in God, they trusted themselves. They trusted in the proceeds that they had received from the sale of the property. They trusted in themselves. 
to know better what to do with the money than God. And so they lacked faith. Giving is an act of faith. Last week in the message we heard about giving being a means of grace. There are many means of grace. There's praying, there's reading of Scripture, there's hearing Scripture proclaimed, there's receiving Holy Communion, there's baptism and remembrance of baptism, there's worship, there's hymn singing, there's service, and there's giving. There are many, 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 many means of grace. Giving is one of them. And when we give, when we give of our time, our talents, our gifts, our service, and our witness, when we give of our presence and our prayers, when we give of that which we have received, we then receive back an amazing gift of grace, piled heavy and grace upon grace upon grace. When we give, we receive. And when we hold back in giving, we receive less. And when we don't give, we don't receive. It's the same with the other means of grace. If you don't read the Scripture, you don't grow spiritually. If you don't pray, you don't grow spiritually. If you don't receive communion, you don't grow spiritually. If you don't worship together, you don't grow spiritually. If you don't sing hymns, you don't grow spiritually. If you don't sing in the choir, you don't grow spiritually. That brought it out of the choir director, didn't it? If you don't partake of the means of grace, you will not grow. You will starve. And one of those means of grace is service, and another means of grace is giving. Giving of all that we have in our giving. Now, the New Testament church said you gave it all. You gave all of it to God. You gave every last shekel to God, or as we would say, every last dollar, nickel, dime, and quarter to God. That was what the New Testament church said. And it caused many problems. After several decades, the New Testament church in Jerusalem was the poor. They were known as the poor because they had given everything and now it was all gone. And they were now poor. So instead of giving it all, God calls us to give as the Holy Spirit prompts us, leads us, and guides us. And from the Old Testament, we have the principle of the tithe. And the tithe is a very important principle. Rather than giving all, because it all comes from God, rather than giving all, because every single little bit of everything that we have belongs to God, including us, Rather than giving all, we're called to give a simple tithe. Tithe, it's an old English word that means a tenth. It means 10% of the total. 10% of what we have. 10% of our wealth. 10% of our possessions. It means giving 10%. That's a tithe. And it's seen not as the maximum that you can give, but as the very rock-bottom 
minimum because it all belongs to God. And so a tithe is a gift of one-tenth back in praise and thanksgiving because God owns it all and is letting us keep and use the 90%. The tithe is a break. It's a limit on our giving. You look at it that way. Instead of 100%, it's only 10%. That's the good news. No one has ever starved to death tithing, friends. Because when you give, and when you give as a matter of practice, as a matter of faith, as a matter of grace, when you give, when you tithe, you receive in great blessing far beyond that which you've given. It's a simple spiritual principle that when you give, you receive. When you give, you receive. When you tithe, you receive. It's not part of the law. This predates the law of Moses. The law of Moses codified elements of it, but it predates the law of Moses. Tithing occurred. Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek. He paid tithe to Melchizedek, who's a type of Christ in the Old Testament, long before Moses. Tithing is a break on our giving, a limit on our giving. Although all of it belongs to God, all of us, all that we have in our, every little bit, every little ounce, every little dime, every little fraction of our being belongs to God, God calls us simply to give a tithe because it's God's. That's the first tithe. The first tithe? Yes. It's tithes, plural, and offerings, plural. There's another tithe. There's the second tithe. The second tithe is for the purchase of Bibles. It's for the purchase of Easter lilies and poinsettias for Christmas and pyramids for the pulpit. The second tithe is to purchase, make religious purchases for yourself and for the church, to make special gifts beyond the first tithe, like candles and angel tree gifts. The second tithe is to engage in religious obligation. The second tithe is also to fund special offerings. Now, in the Old Testament, see there's the tenth, that tenth bit. In the Old Testament, there are five basic kinds of offerings. There is the burnt offering. The burnt offering is a voluntary offering in which we're thanking God for that which we have received, for God's good gifts. It's also an offering designed to make restitution for uh, some minor sins if we've done something wrong, if there's been a problem in our families. We can make a burnt offering for that as well. But the principal purpose of the burnt offering, it's a voluntary offering that we give to God, thanking God for what we've received. The same is true about the grain offering. It's a voluntary gift, thanking God for God's good gifts. Instead of burning some uh, animal sacrifice, you give an offering from the field in the grain offering. Then there's the peace offering. The peace offering is a little more extensive. It's a voluntary thanksgiving for God's nature as God. 
It includes things like communal meals. The, the, the Passover Seder is part of the concept of the peace offering. The Holy Eucharist is a peace offering in which we thank God for God. And then you've got the sin offering, which is a mandatory offering for sins, and you've got the trespass offering, which is also a mandatory offering for sins. Okay, it says that sounds like the same thing repeated, not, not quite. The sin offering is for unintentional sins and for minor sins, uh, sins that are problematic, but, but the, the directions for how to make the sin offering are fairly simple. The trespass offering is for biggies, really big sins, really naughty things that you've done. And it includes a 20% fine. And it specifically identifies the ram that you're supposed to sacrifice and how you're supposed to sacrifice it. So the trespass offering is the really big one. Now, in the church, the sin offering and the trespass offering have been taken over by Jesus Christ on the cross. They've been taken over by Jesus Christ on the cross. He made restitution for all sin, all time, everywhere, once and for all, on the cross. He died for all sins of every magnitude on the cross, from simple mistakes to the biggest sin you can possibly think of. Every sin that you ever commit, have ever committed, or will ever commit, on the cross, on Jesus. Taken care of, done. But the three voluntary offerings, those are the offerings that we still give. When we give thanks and praise to God and give a special offering beyond the tithe, that's one of those three offerings. When we gather at the table of the Lord for the Eucharist, that's the peace offering. When we make a gift to God, a special gift beyond the tithe, a memorial gift to God, through the church, we're making one of these other three kinds of biblical offerings. Those are not the tithe. They're beyond the tithe. You see, there's a second tithe, and a second tithe can also fund those three offerings. In the Bible, it would fund the purchase of the turtle doves and the pigeons, or the lambs, or the ram to make these sacrifices, or the, the grain offering, fund the purchase of the grain if you weren't a farmer, to make the grain offering. You would use the second tithe to fund these offerings, among other things, including your trips to Jerusalem. That second tithe is a 10% on the 90% you've got left after your first tithe. Now, it's not complex. It's really not. Tithing is a simple break and a guide for how to give. Do you have to tithe? To be saved? No. But if you are saved, you will be a giver. If you are saved, you will be a giver. You can't not give and be a member of the body of Christ. If you are part of the body of Christ, you are going to give. 
And if you are a body of, member of the body of Christ, you're going to be like the New Testament church, wanting to give more and more and more. And that's good. Give more of your time, more of your talents, more of your gifts and service and witness. And the tithe is designed to provide some guidance, to structure and measure your giving and control your giving so that family and other obligations can be handled and taken care of as well, so that God can truly continue to bless you through the work of your hands, through your labor, through your ministry. Tithing is a guide to giving, and giving changes everything in our existence. Giving changes absolutely everything. It changes who we are and what we are and whose we are. When we become givers, we access the means of grace in giving. And it's not just about money. Tithing isn't just about money. Think about the other pledges that we make in the body of Christ. We pray that we will support, we pledge we will support, we confess that we will support through our prayers, our presence, our gifts, our service, and our witness. When was the last time that you tithed 10%, you tithed your time to God? Huh? When was the last time you tithed your time to God? Now, a tithe of time would be two hours, 2.4 hours a day. 144 minutes would be a tithe, a minimal tithe of time. 144 minutes. Well, on Sundays you might put in 144 minutes uh, devoted to God. On Sundays you might, Greg, do you preach 144 minutes, Greg? No, some of you may think I do, but I don't. I could try it sometime. The African-American church, they sometimes have 144-minute sermons. When have you last tithed time? I want to encourage you. I want to challenge you today. In the coming week, I want you to tithe your time to God. I want you to take 10% of your day and tithe it to God. And spend it in prayer and reading of Scripture. Simple. Let's make it really simple. Take 10% of your day, 144 minutes, and spend it in prayer and reading of Scripture. I want to challenge you to do this in the coming week. Every day, take 144 minutes, a tithe of the day, and spend it with God in prayer and in reading Scripture. If you do that, I guarantee you, God's grace will pour out into your life in a way that you can't possibly imagine, that you only think you can know. If you spend a tithe of your day in prayer and thanksgiving, in the reading of Scripture, in the studying of God's Word, And in prayer, if you spend just 10% of your day, you will be changed. God 
and His grace will pour out into your life and you will change. God will change you. Not me, not somebody else, God. If you tithe your time to God, God will change you. My brothers and sisters, it can be tempting to give it all to Jesus. And we are called to give all of ourselves to God. We can start doing that by tithing all of ourselves to God. Spending just 10% of your day with God. It's not that much time. I challenge you this coming week. Tithe your time to God and see what God does for you. Well, if God does that in just spending that much time with God, how about 10% of your time in service, 10% of your time in your talents, 10% of your giving, of your resources? What will God do in your life if you tithe your entire existence to Him? How much more then? will God use you if you give your tithes and your offerings to God. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In your been listening to a sermon by Dr. Gregory Neal, Senior Pastor of Northgate United Methodist Church and Rector of Grace Incarnate Ministries. Copyright 2014 by Dr. Gregory S. Neal. All rights reserved. For more information or to listen to other sermons by Dr. Neal, visit us on the web at www.revneal.org. That's www.revneal.org. You are also invited to visit us in person at Northgate United Methodist Church, 3700 West Northgate Drive, Irving, Texas, 75062. This program was produced by Dr. Gregory Neal.